Well, thank you. That was wonderful, and I really can't follow that, so you're dismissed. Thank you very much. I sang in the Covenant Chorale the, all the years I was in college here, and the Madigo Singers as well, and I have fond memories, and that was really good. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, we've decided to dispense with uh, introductions, for which we've become a little bit well-known here at the college in the interest of time. And Kelly was originally going to introduce me, Dr. Kapik, and I got a hold of his notes, and his notes began something like, uh, it is widely known that Matt Voss is one of the top three or four sociologists at Covenant College. <laughs> and it went on from there. So since we're dispensing with introductions, I will simply introduce myself in the words of Austin Powers. Allow myself to introduce myself. Enough scene. This is called There's No Such Thing as Alone, From Bounded Being Accounts to Doxological Subject. I'm sitting at home alone writing this. As I work, I wonder if I'm spending my time well. I wonder if I'm forgetting something my wife asked me to do. Probably. I just got back from taking my daughter to a doctor's appointment, and I'm sure there was something I was supposed to pick up. But what? Writing this has been weighing on my mind a bit. I like to write, but I also feel a bit worn out from an exhausting semester, and frankly, I'd rather be mowing the lawn. But I know the high standards my covenant colleagues have come to expect from me, so I urge myself to press on. And as I write, I wonder if what I put on the page will fit well with other similar literature. Will it simply be one more redundant article in a sea of publishing? Will it have even a solitary insight that's helpful? I wish I knew more philosophy. What if one of my colleagues in biblical studies or philosophy reads this? What if I've inadvertently missed the mark because I was ignorant of an entire philosophical tradition in Western thought? It's quite possible, even probable. Let's face it, I'm no Robert Earl. Will someone reduce my best efforts, if I can call anything my best effort, in the midst of raising a family, earning a living, and keeping my house from falling apart, to something juvenile and trivial? If so, what to do? I'm 47 and no longer qualified to do anything besides this. Wow, that's depressing. And so I sit, alone, working, except there's music on, something by Don Henley, I think. I like him. He raises more than a few sociological issues as he's a bit of an activist. I use his song, Dirty Laundry, in the Habermas lecture I give in contemporary social thought class. She can tell you about the plane crash with a gleam in her eye. It's interesting when people die, give us dirty laundry. I wonder what other faculty in the administration at my college would think about Don Henley. It's a conservative college, and he's on and on about things they might not appreciate here. Don Henley's about my dad's age, I think. No wonder my daughter can't relate to any of the music I like. My mind, whatever that is, turns to raising my kids. It's tougher than I thought it would be. I have a joke that I'm raising our son while Joan is raising the girls. Alex, the easy one, with what seems like a naturally generous and winsome personality. Very boss-like. <laughs> then again, he's nine, and things change a lot from nine to my oldest daughter's 14. Perhaps I'll change the joke later. In a way, my kids are such a reflection of me. I feel this most when I get a note home from a principal or teacher about some supposedly inappropriate behavior. But Dad, it's a reasonable question to ask why the teacher doesn't have to wear a uniform too. Or worse. But what about more important things? Will my kids adopt my faith? What does it even mean to share someone's faith? I try to clear my so-called mind because as you can plainly see, this line of thought isn't going anywhere. 
Maybe they're right. We college professors really don't work in the summer. I wrote this in the summer. But what does it mean to clear one's mind? Does that mean that I render myself unable to access memories or to think about what I'll do this afternoon? Do I, for the moment, forget that I'm a husband, father, colleague, son, brother, advisor, teacher, shepherd? I actually have sheep. Or child of God? <laughs> to clear one's throat means to push something aside. Is clearing one's mind a similar sort of operation? A rearrangement of cognitive phlegm? What is that phlegm? Is it the residue of my relationships? So here I sit, alone. I better enjoy it while it lasts, because it's 1.15 and in two hours I'll have to pick up the kids and any chance of clearing my mind will have irrevocably faded away. Should I watch some TV or read part of a novel? That's what I like to do when I'm alone. Perhaps I'll choose a comedy. No, that's hard to enjoy when you're alone. Actually, I think I'll go on a motorcycle ride. What's more alone than that? But am I really alone? Is there any such thing? Bounded being, a world of relentless evaluation. This essay, this talk, draws on ideas gleaned from Kenneth Gergen's 2009 book, Relational Being, Beyond Self and Community, in an effort to reconsider and perhaps better understand what it means for us to stand before God and give an account of ourselves. For me, perhaps for you, verses suggesting such things, uh, Matthew 12, 36, Romans 14, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and Hebrews 4, 13, there's a host of them, contain a substantial dose of existential terror. Stand before God, give an account of myself. Can I bring Kelly with me? He knows so much more. This is not primarily a tactic to reassert Christian doctrines of justification. Its intent is not to remind the reader that Christ stands in our place as intercessor. Rather, this excursus has as its major objective a sociological reframing of what it means to stand before God and give an account. It examines the possibility that there's really no such thing as an individual standing alone. How, for example, might a feral child, the closest thing we get to alone, give such an account? Gergen quotes Dizzy Gillespie, who, speaking of Louis Armstrong, said, Know him, know me. Illustrating how it's within relationship that we become somebody and are sustained as that somebody. In the end, I will consider the possibility that we stand before God as a confluence. Gergen's term for self with others, where self is dependent on others for being, actions, motives, intelligibility, morality, and even conception of the deity. Furthermore, I hope to draw attention to the ways in which Western individualism has distorted our understanding of what it means to give an account in hope that we can embrace a more holistic view of the relationship between God and humanity where the we of the church is taken as primary rather than just simply as an ends to a, as a means to an end used by individuals. Seen this way, individuals emerge from the church, the parts from the whole and not the other way excuse me, around. The question is whether the individual member can be dislodged or disconnected from the collective, the church, the body, to provide standalone testimony about anything. Christian testimony is the testimony of the church. The so-called individual doesn't leave the church, standing apart from it, to give testimony or account as though it were merely a preparatory agency turning out the product Christian. Might not the church stand before God to give account? The 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and following analogy of the church as a body 
from which parts should not be dismembered, provides an example of the point I'm working to make. The thought of excising a foot so the foot can stand alone is unthinkable and has devastating implications both for the foot and for the body as an organic whole. A foot has no meaning apart from the body, and a medical doctor properly throws a foot away if irrevocably separated from the body. In relational being, Ken Gergen contests what he calls our bounded being conception of the self. The idea that there's this standalone self at the center of it all. Steeped in Western individualism and given expression in every conceivable way our culture can imagine, school, sports, church, employment, politics, economics, consumerism, and so on, our thinking about the self as discrete, isolated, and atomistic vivifies an endless stream of pathological consequences. This dominant vision of the self sees humans as fundamentally separate and alone. From this perspective, we're born alone, we live alone, we die alone, and to go a bit beyond Gergen, we stand before God's judgment throne alone and perhaps face eternity alone. Alone with ourselves, alone with our lives, alone with our dreams, alone with our accomplishments, alone with our sin. As children, we learn the social priority of standing alone, perhaps most evident in the great lengths we go to bring children to a place of self-sufficiency, an absurd notion if ever there were one especially male children who are labeled and chastised should they need their mothers longer than a few short years. A maladaptive approach to child development explored in the psychoanalytic theory of Nancy Chaudhary that we've been studying in my gender class. For adults, we see the effects of bounded being in higher suicide rates. For you sociology majors, you can think about Durkheim. Among those who are most able to stand alone, among those best able to distinguish themselves from others, those best at acting out the deception of the self. Put simply, we are drowning in the aloneness of the self as bounded being, the iron cage of the self. If I am fundamentally alone, if I am the origin of my actions, then what is to be said of failure? To be sure there are events outside my control, but by and large, we tend to assume that my failures are of my own doing. Consider Gergen's words. The possibility of personal inferiority begins as early as a child's first experience with competitive games. My failure is not taken lightly. Upon entering school, the self in question becomes institutionalized. From that day forward, the individual exists in a state of continuous evaluation. Am I good enough? Will I fail? How will I be judged by my teachers, parents, and classmates? Have I sinned? The stakes become higher as one's career is on the line. There are the SATs, IQ scores, GREs, MCATs, LSATs, or the IDEA professor evaluation forms. And then the college graduate enters adult professional life to find semi-annual performance evaluations, promotion evaluations, a life replete with threats to one's work. A graceless world, is it not? An existence where, again, I, or you, stand alone, make it alone, fail alone, die alone, are judged alone. Seen thus, community is little more than something we harness as an accoutrement to the self, a means only to self-ish ends. As I watch my children's lives colonized by competition, fear of failure, self-directed striving toward future imagined careers, and the existential terror that so often accompanies religion, Gergen's ideas resonate with me, and I find myself hopeful. Perhaps there is another way. But if there is, it involves a profound undoing of business as usual in the world in which we live.
For Gergen, this other way is to consider the word, world in terms of relational confluence, self with others. Bounded being is employed by the church. Most of the churches I belong to have employed some version of vacation Bible school, an ecclesial staple in the American South. For the most part, these churches purchase and utilize published curricula. While these products differ thematically, many of them utilize what I've come to call a John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress approach. In Pilgrim's Progress, the plucky protagonist Christian, sounds good to me, makes a journey alone from the city of destruction to the celestial city, the place of reward. VBS programs using this general approach can be obtained using Olympic themes, containing Olympic themes, mountain climbing themes, space exploration themes, just to name a few. A few. Sorry, no encountering the deity through sociology programs have been yet made available. But stay tuned, they'll come. While these programs vary in the route taken to get to God, whether through space, up a mountain, or under the sea, many employ a bounded being concept of the person, an approach that prepares each of them to stand alone before God and give an account. The curriculum typically confronts a child with his or her need for God, distance from God, and then provides a plan that routes them through the protocol of acknowledging their personal depravity and confessing their individual sins, and then receiving God's grace and entering into a Jesus is my best friend relationship with the deity. Granted, there are worse things, but I clearly remember one summer when our church canvassed inner city neighborhoods searching for children from disenfranchised situations. Part of our VBS protocol was to have counselors like me no counseling training, engage with individual children during free time, listen to their stories, give them the attention and concern of a supportive, caring adult or a college student. So far, so good. And in their stories, we heard a great deal of brokenness, stemming, mostly, it seemed clear to me, from the sins of their parents. After this informal sharing time, when we returned to the program proper, these same children were invited to meet the deity who was described as being rightfully angry with them and to whom they must give an account of their sin, whereupon they receive pardon and perhaps go to heaven when they die. What made this problematic for me, besides almost all of it, I now realize was that it largely dislodged the children from the relational narrative in which their lives were situated, in which they were sustained, as though they could leave their narrative behind, as though it could be cast off. But what of my mother? But what of my father? They're on their own. Guilty on your own, confessing on your own, receiving grace on your own, going to heaven or elsewhere on your own. No wonder when we hear accounts of near-death experiences in the popular media, they're almost without exception related in terms of bounded being. Me, my relatives, familiar cultural media, normative for me, etc. We've imagined no other way. Within this paradigm, there's really no we. I stand alone, you stand alone, except there's no such thing as alone. The scriptures, to my lay theological understanding, reframing that, to my sophisticated lay theological understanding, hold in tension the individual and the collective for our purposes of church. However, to me, the church seems primary and fundamental, while the individual or self is often presented as something to be subordinated to the collective. Jesus and the writers of scripture seem less concerned with promoting self-actualization, certainly as we understand that idea, and more with the practice of pouring out and losing the self as part of belonging. For example, Matthew 10, 39 records Jesus as saying, whoever finds his life will lose it, 
Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. A wonderful counterintuitive perspective on identity. Furthermore, the social context in which these scriptures were given was far more collectivist than what we take as normal in contemporary Western society. For example, the concept of conversion seems less a matter of individual will, decision, and personal identity, and more a family phenomenon in the Acts 16 account of the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his family. Were one of the jailer's children called to give an account of her conversion, she would likely have little more to say than her family name. A stronger sense of we, a lesser sense of bounded being. All of this, of course, stands in contrast with the notion of the celebrated self, celebrity, which figures so prominently in contemporary Western culture and which drives the relentless evaluation and culture of narcissism decried by Gergen. Accounts before God. Seen one way, this aloneness we've been discussing, this existence outside the community where the person can stand apart from the body collective, fits with scriptural references to giving an account before God. And several scriptures offer some variant of this idea. In the interest of time, I'll sort of let you read through those and I'll proceed on here. The community, the church, seems peripheral in these and other passages. These verses seem to position the individual away from the community in providing an account. But what if we think of the church, the confluence of bended knees as the entity giving an account before God? What have you, collectively, done with this world I've entrusted to you? You are its caretakers, and it is your relationship with one another that bear witness to my reign and my gospel. What have you to say? Or can the hand disconnect from the body and bear disembodied witness? With an acceptable bit of hermeneutic maneuvering, more comfortable to the sociologists perhaps than to some theologians, these passages may suggest the possibility that the church, the people of God, are the ones who appear to give an account. This seems to me at least to be a possibility from a more collectivist perspective. Look at that, Calvin, huh? From a sociologist. <laughs> if Hans Madway may convey passing lip service to Calvin, so can I. John Calvin's Institutes manifest concern with both of these types, individual and collective. On one hand, Calvin demonstrates concern with the individual and with individual concerns about justification, sanctification, and one's relationship with God. On the other, his writings suggest the irreducibility of the church for the believer's life and identity and proclaim a communitarian view of God in relationship with groups like Israel and the church. The Institutes begins with Calvin's acknowledgement of the dialectic between self and other, namely God. Under the heading, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God, he writes, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. He continues saying, for quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. Though not explicitly about God's people, the church, this in foundational way suggests that the self is not bounded and cannot be seen as self-existing, self-sustained, or self-defined, a move away from bounded being and toward a rootedness in relational being. The next section acknowledges the other side of the dialectic and offers the heading, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. To know oneself 
Indeed, to have a self, one must be located in relationship. Later in the Institutes, Calvin underscores what could be taken as the inseparability of the individual from the church. In discussing the Apostles' Creed and under the heading, The Communion of Saints, he writes, Each of us should keep in brotherly agreement with all God's children, should yield to the church the authority it deserves, in short, should act as one of the flock. Sounds like a confluence to me. Conversion, salvation, and relationship with God. Alone again? In his absorbing book, Evangelism After Christendom, The Theology and Practice of Christian Witness, theologian Brian Stone explores the devastating effects of Western individualism on Christian evangelism and the church. At the heart of his analysis, he situates the narrative of the self, something that sounds quite a bit like Gergen's concept of founded being. Stone is concerned with the ways in which the socially constructed split between private and public, organizational and personal, society and individual, lay the groundwork for a similar bifurcation in our understanding of the relationship between the so-called individual and the church, one in which they are fundamentally separate. Quote, the modern notion of the self invented by the Enlightenment is essentially autonomous, abstract, empty of any necessary social content, detached from its social context, and entirely set over against the social world. In other words, modernity has furnished us with a modal self that is distinct, separate, disconnected, autonomous, and self-referential. And any alternative to this way of being has become unthinkable. The dialectic between self and social has been definitively severed. While Stone's focus falls on the church's practice of evangelism, his inquiry parallels our concern with bounded being and accounts before God. Just as we harbor and internalize the distinction between, say, our work life and personal or private life, we maintain a similar distinction between church and individual. Accordingly, the church becomes understood as a sort of voluntary agency of socialization, I think seeker-friendly here, that the individual believer can use to achieve personal and private ends, but which is ultimately separable from individual identity and selfhood. For Stone, this reflects the Enlightenment belief that the believer's self can even exist, let alone offer an account apart from the church. He observes, as the church in modernity is increasingly shaped by this bifurcated social imagination, it becomes on the one hand a bureaucratic institution directed by expert managers or therapists called pastors, and on the other hand a mere aggregate of individuals, each of whom determines the character and telos of his or her personal and essentially private relationship with God. Evangelism likewise becomes either a matter of rational technique, planning, and strategy aimed at promoting and defending the rationality, effectiveness, or usefulness of the gospel, or a function of one's winsome personality and skills in rhetorical persuasion. But in both cases, the means and end of the Christian life are severed from one another, and so also, is the self from that spirit-created body from which Christians derive what it properly means to be a self in the first place, namely, the church. Accordingly, the notion of salvation becomes deformed as a standalone enlightenment product that one achieves or one attains and which one possesses as one might own property, as in my salvation. Salvation in such a world is transformed into an essentially private, one-by-one -one affair, 
Well, evangelism becomes a practice based almost entirely on individual personality and persuasion, an attempt to lead individuals into a private decision to have a personal relationship with Jesus or to join a church, much as one might join a club or other association. The modern Western model of church and salvation, especially in its Protestant forms, is largely predicated upon this narrative of the self. I'll let you read this on your own. For the people of God, then, there really is no such thing as alone. We are an inseparable part of a confluence. There's no self apart from the whole, and selves derive from the whole, not the whole from the selves. Accordingly, I suggest that we people of faith reframe our understanding of what it means to give an account to God, moving away from bounded being enlightenment conceptions that distort the primacy of the church for the identity and selves of the people of God. Playing off the Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong quote offered earlier, know him, know me, the believer might say, know us, know me. Holding a person alone, accountable for her sin or actions, denies the reality of what the church is and does, denies what a person is and does, and affirms a bifurcated reality that leaves us, at best, with a fragmented self and a disposable church. Can a person as bounded being, alone, give an account of their politics, of their economics, of their morality, of anything? On the other hand, such questions are quite appropriate for the body collective. As Stone rightly concludes, salvation is impossible apart from the church, not because the church has received salvation as a possession and is now in a position to dispense it or withhold it from others. It is instead because salvation is, in the first place, a distinct form of social existence. To be saved is to be made part of a new people and a new politics, the body of Christ. For such a new people, there's no such thing as alone. If we must, as believers, think of the self, and if it is to be for us a useful concept at all, we might, as Stone suggests, move away from enlightenment presuppositions about the self as self-positing, self-possessed, self-sufficient, and think rather of the self, and I like this, as doxological subject, created in ecstatic openness, and always receiving itself as a gift. Give an account of myself? No, my testimony is the testimony of the church. Here's our account, and thanks be to God for that. I end with this. Let's conclude by returning to the opening statement in Gergen's book. In the beginning was the relationship. As we think about how we might begin to retract our notion, our bounded being conceptions of person, faith, church, community, and nation, supplanting such reified individualism with the notion of confluence, it should not escape our attention that the church that Calvin's followers, think Protestant ethic, that the 71% and falling of Americans who claim the label Christian have fallen so decisively on the bounded side of the dialectic. For our birthright is the birthright of relationship. In a world of rabid nationalism, finely split, and even vicious denominationalism, no-fault divorce, a relentless consumer culture, environmental degradation, the mind-numbing violence of commercial sports, and the relentless drive to distinguish ourselves from others. Perhaps we might more seriously question what bounded being is costing us. And perhaps the first move might come from the church, where the beauty of holiness and the witness of the church never stand as some bounded thing, but always as a bride collective, 
the now and future kingdom of God, then is not a place, nor is it the fulfillment of self-directed fantasies. It is, instead, the fullness of relationship, the entrance into an engagement with the triune God and with his people, which represents not loss of self, but fullness of self, a self inextricably joined with others in endless doxology, always receiving itself through grace as a gift. Though I hear it frequently in the circles in which I move, I've never liked the well-intentioned Abraham Kuyper quote, there is not a square inch in all domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's always sounded a bit grabby to me. It's toned a bit out of character with the Jesus of the scriptures as I've come to know him. And so perhaps you'll indulge me the following revision. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, ours. Thank you. Have a good day.